Well, the news today is that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has been appointed on a three-year deal as the permanent manager of Manchester United after 14 wins from 19 games as the caretaker. Now, amidst all the happiness and excitement for uh, Manchester United fans, I'm sure that there will be a bit of circumspection now to look at the size of Solskjaer's inbox because let's face it, a lot of the problems that came out in the Mourinho era are still there and need to be addressed, Ian. I think that's correct. I think um, the um, the centre of Solskjaer's uh, issues that he has to address will be actually challenging those people that make decisions at the club. Um, Duncan has um, kept us right up to date and uh, on the cutting edge of the problems that Jose Mourinho had with regards to Ed Woodward's uh, intrusions and um, lack of uh, correct decision-making during his tenure uh, at, at Manchester United. I think the Glazers, in particular Joel and Brian, um, who have the most interest day-to-day in Manchester United, also need persuading with regards to what the manager's, um, let's say his limits or his lack of limits are regarding decision-making processes. So first of all, for Solskjaer, there are existing problems and uh, those are with current players who either um, want new contracts or who are currently in negotiations with new contracts. He also has um, to, to effectively put his, I guess, his, his imprint on um, what, what players he wants to buy because one of the things that um, has been evident since Sir Alex Ferguson retired is that David Moyes, Louis van Gaal and Jose Mourinho all have failed to um, secure players that they wanted and instead were gifted players that were given to them by Woodward and the board. Um, I think uh, Duncan would be the best person to give us some detailed analysis on this, as I said, because he's been um, at the forefront of this uh, since the last two and a half years. Well, I think, um, I think one thing you can say is there's probably an element of applause for Woodward and Glazers in the, in the timing of this decision, in that I think everyone knew Willie Gunnar Solskjaer was going to be the permanent manager um, because of the job he's done since coming in, the way he's turned things around this season, um, the positivity he's brought to the dressing room, positivity he's brought to the club. Um, the fans wanted this to happen, so, so the choice was essentially made. I think what they've done is given, given him a vote of confidence in a period that's probably been most difficult that he's experienced um, since coming into the club, lost the last two games. There is um, a battle on the line to try and secure a Champions League place, be that from 
um, the unlikely possibility of winning the Champions League um, or from achieving uh, fourth um, or possibly third place in, in the Premier League and qualifying through those positions. So um, the timing, I think, is good from, from that perspective of saying and declaring you are our man. Um, we want you to get the best finish possible this season. We want to see you go past Barcelona in that sort of 20th anniversary of the of the famous game where Solskjaer won um, Manchester United the Champions League at the Camp Nou. Um, so, so there's you know the, I think I think they've they've judged that quite well in terms of timing. However, as you point out, that's um, that's pretty much one small element of what the the real job is. And you know, I, I wrote a column for um, for the Daily Record last weekend, asking whether um, you know the worry for Manchester United fans has to be as this as good as it gets um, under Solskjaer. That game in Barcelona, um, those memories of 20 years ago, um, the the sort of nostalgia that will go along uh, in the build up to that match, is that as good as it gets? Because the fundamental problems of Manchester United. Um, remain unsolved. Um, he is the fifth manager of the Woodward era. Um, I think someone pointed out today that um, David Moyes' con six-year contract he was handed as the successor for Sir Alex Ferguson would still be in effect if he hadn't been sacked. Um, I uh, put a little poll on Twitter today asking whether... Um, he would be, Solskjaer would manage to be the first manager of the Edward era to see a contract its full term. At the moment, the response I've get is, you know, 59% saying yes, he'll manage to stay and 41% saying no, he'll be gone by 2022 when, he's, when his full-time contract is due to expire. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a very serious question for Solskjaer now, having done the the, the parts he had to do coming in as an interim manager to turn things around and try and earn the job for himself. Now he has to take on the bigger fight, which is getting the Glazers and getting Ed Woodward to run the club as a football club and not as a commercial club, as um, Louis van Gaal described it in, a, in an interesting interview he did with the BBC this week. Um, anyone who looks at that squad will say... Uh, it is not fit for purpose. It is not a squad that is realistically capable of winning the Premier League title. It's significantly weaker than Liverpool, significantly weaker than Manchester City's. Um, this Champions League quarterfinal that they're about to play is the furthest they've gone in the tournament since Ferguson left. The best finish they've had in the Premier League um, under Ed Woodward is second. Um, and, is Luggy and, trying to have a say in the background there, Duncan? She is, yeah. She's uh, <laughs> she's looking for her signing bonus, having having helped to Uli get his, uh, his new job at Old Trafford. Um, but yeah, so the, the list goes on and on of, of the things that Solskjaer needs to do. And the question is whether he has the power uh, and the authority to do that. Um, the question is whether he will push for a director of football. Um, which you know Ed Woodward has intimated is his intention of solving the the problems that um, led to Mourinho's sacking, 
but still uh, no one is in place. Some of the leading candidates for the role haven't even been contacted uh, to, be a- to be asked if they'd be interested. And um, you see them in a transfer market where it's obvious that United need to strengthen at centre-back. Um, they need a right winger. Uh, there is question marks over David De Gea's future. You see Paul Pogba agitating um, for either a new contract or, or potentially a move away. There's um, Marcus Rashford agitating for a new contract. Contract. All these things have to be resolved. But the, the signs from United are um, what they want to do are, are not sign experienced players who can who can immediately fix these situations, but go for younger players in, um, in their early twenties or even or. or perhaps younger than that, who can be long-term solutions to these positions, which, you know, in principle sounds an attractive thing. Supporters like it when clubs are, are buying younger players. But this is a squad that's, that's basically devoid of leadership. Um, and there are situations in which you can put young players in and have a, an immediately functioning team. But there are also situations where you need experience you need um, a winning mentality. You need players who are able to resist difficult situations, which Manchester United will definitely experience going forward. And if you don't add them, then you just you, you risk repeating the problems you've had for the last six years now. I think as well, we, sh- we should take note that um, this began as a marriage of convenience. Uh, Mourinho was sacked. Um, Manchester United needed someone to come in. And in a very short space of time, lift the mood of the dressing, lift the players, lift the mood of the Manchester United fans as well. They took a gamble, no doubt, um, bringing Solskjaer and his caretaker, given his limited coaching experience, albeit he had worked with the academy at United before um, two spells at Molde, in his native Norway. But um, it's very quickly become a comfortable relationship uh, from having its beginnings in inconvenience. Now, with any comfortable relationship, um, it will only really be tested uh, in adversity. And so far, adversity has been fairly minimal. Uh, you know, FA Cup lost to Wolves was poor, but other than that, one Premier League defeat at Arsenal in 14 has shown, has given um, Solskjaer a Premier League point return average of 2.46 per game. Now, obviously, it's a very limited um amount of games that he's, he's been in charge of so far. But as Duncan points out, it's not good enough at Manchester United just to lift the players, lift the crowd and have a good winning run. You have to be challenging for the Premier League title. You've got to be challenging for the Champions League. So I think this particular appointment um, by Woodward and the Glazers, the fifth since Sir Alex Ferguson retired in 2013, will only really be tested um, when things go wrong, uh, or indeed when they get to the point where things have to go right, i.e., um, you know the, the, the pressure games, Champions League semi-final, Champions League final, or indeed um, the games that United now must win in order to do their best to get into the top four next season. So um, while today uh, on Solskjaer's uh, confirmation uh, and and in, indeed you know it is. Um, what we all expected and all had predicted would be the case um, that he would um, be appointed full-time manager. Um, I don't think that um, Solskjaer himself, he seems to be a very intelligent person, 
he will not be um, unaware of the, the actual task at hand for him. Um, the things that we've discussed already with regards to problems that are in the club. And again, pr- problems which will come up. I mean, we've not even mentioned Alexis Sanchez, this highest general at the club, um, someone who has played very little football since joining Manchester United, um, who seems to be a, a negative influence around training and in the dressing room as well. If Solskjaer could get him playing the kind of football that we know he's capable of, then you know that would be a massive boost for Manchester United, given that they'll find it very difficult to recoup um, very much of the transfer fee and indeed move him on at the wages he's on as well without having to pay substantial compensation to the player. So, um, as I said, amongst all the uh, sort of ribbons and bells of you know the news today, I think um, what really needs to be addressed is, is the problems at hand for United and the ones which have stopped them or indeed um, handicapped them from com- competing properly at uh, the levels which Manchester United fans and the club historically and traditionally expect them to. Yeah, are you surprised by the impact that Solskjaer's made? Um, yes, and I saw Gary Neville um, say on Twitter today as well that he did not expect when Solskjaer was appointed uh, interim that he they would be getting to this point where he was appointed as head coach. So Neville's someone knows Solskjaer as good as, as well as anyone and knows Manchester United as well as anyone. So if he's saying that, then, you know, I think we've all got to take that um, as, as being the case. <sighs> the, the point is that with Solskjaer, he, he got this job because of his reputation and his, his love affair with the club. That was the reason why he was given the job as interim. Um, remember, it was given to Ryan Giggs um, for, I think, four weeks or something, and he didn't do very well, but four weeks isn't a very good test period. What Solskjaer inherited was a team effectively at a very low bar. And, you know, his his impact was in motivating the players and in, in lifting them in terms of their morale and getting performances out of them. And I think he did that by effectively allowing us a, a certain amount of liberty and freedom. Um, we heard lots of stories about um, him consulting um, very you know important players like Pogba, about tactics, um, you know how he felt best the team might be able to perform and express themselves. We then heard hear about him giving his first hairdryer uh, after the Wolves defeat in the FA Cup um, quarter uh, quarter final, and and singling out Pogba indeed, and also saying that they played like a Jose Mourinho team um, in that game uh, when they lost two 0 So I think he's going to have to show a different side of himself, and it's a lot harder to be bad cop than it is to be good cop when you're a coach, especially someone who has achieved nothing as a coach so far in terms of trophies or longevity. Um, Solskjaer gets the respect and indeed the affection of the dressing room because of his legend at Old Trafford. But you find that legends can be sacked as well. It's harder to sack them because the fans will always have that affection for them. But remember how many times Ken Douglas was sacked at Liverpool as manager, you know, or left as manager, etc. So it's, it does happen, and um, <clears throat> it happens to the best of them. So Solskjaer's got an awful lot to do. Um, and again, I'm not trying to rain on his parade here. I think he is, you know, smart enough to know that he's got an awful lot to do. And indeed, he probably didn't believe that he would be in this position today either when he took the job on. I think he genuinely believed it would be the end of the season that they would be working hard to find someone else. 
But he's benefited from, A, his own ability to turn results around, and B, I also think the fact that there are very few coaches out there who United would look to bring in. Um, and so it's a case of maybe it's a free hit. Maybe it is. I, you know, I don't think there's such a thing that Manchester United is a free hit, but maybe this comes as close as, as, as it might get. I think, I think he's been very bright. He's been very intelligent. You can't argue with the job he's done. He's, he's been pragmatic tactically. Um, while speaking a very good game, he's brought positivity to, uh, to the public communication side of the club, which has been very well received. He's brought a positivity to the fans and a positivity to the players. I think, as Ian points out, it's... It's easy to be the good cop, and then and when the bad cop side comes along, that's going to be a further test of him. But he's done what's required, and he's uh, taken the job on his own merits. Um, you know, he's he's had his trial period, as as Ian says, no one seriously expected him to get the job full time, um, but he's earned it with his results. Um, and there's, you know, I think I mentioned that Louis Van Al um, <coughs> interview with the BBC earlier, uh, and. Uh, Van Gaal was quite critical of Solskjaer in, I, I think, unfairly describing his football as park-the-bus football. And, and I was quite disappointed to see um, Van Gaal use that cliche um, of describing a counter-attacking team as a park-the-bus team because there's a big difference between counter-attacking football and park-the-bus football. You can play park-the-bus football with counter-attack or you can play counter-attack where you don't stick everyone in front of the, your own goal. I think the only time I've seen Solskjaer play a, a properly deep defensive system was in the second leg against Paris Saint-Germain, when he had a lot of players injured, um, where his game plan was to try and survive as long as possible and nick goals in the break. And it came off, because, part, I think mainly because Paris Saint-Germain were so overconfident going into that game. They gave Manchester United easy goals. But, you know... Um, Van Gaal's description of it as part of the bus football is unfair and his, his description of his own football at Manchester United as attacking football, I think um, the statistics in this case are very well worth um, reminding people of and, and they, um, they give the lie to what he called attacking football. It, he, this is from his second season at Manchester United. He had average possession of 60%, top of the league. He also had more passes in his own half of the field than any other team in the league. More passes backward than any team in the league. Um, fewer passes forward than any team in the league in percentage terms. Fewer passes into the final third than any but one team in the Premier League and was 15th in chance created. So um, what Van Gaal describes as attacking football, I think would be more accurately described as control the ball football um, and don't take risks. And I'd rather watch what Van Gaal describes as part of the bus counter-attacking football than I would um, the, the kind of football he was producing as Manchester United manager. So I think there's a, a fair amount of sour grapes in what Van Gaal said about Solskjaer and what he said about Mourinho, who, who obviously took the job from him. And you can understand why Van Gaal would be upset with Mourinho and the way uh, he lost the job to him. But I think the, the elements of Van Gaal's interview, which were um, most pertinent, was when he was talking about Ed Woodward, talking about the Glazers, talking about the way the club is run, talking about transfer policy, um, scouting structure, etc., and those are the issues that have not changed with Solskjaer's appointment. 
And the worry, the big worry, I think, for Manchester United fans is something that we've been talking about in the podcast for several months, which is Solskjaer is the easy appointment for the Glazers. It's the appointment that would go down well with the fans because of his history and because of results on the pitch, but the one which would cost them the least money in terms of compensation and salary and allow them to carry on with the commercial club structure, as Van Hal describes it, that, they, that has done them so well in the stock market, but done the club so poorly on the football field since Sir Alex Ferguson left. And that, I think, is the key challenge for Solskjaer if he is going to see out the length of this contract and truly um, reinstall Manchester United as a top club on the football field in European football. It's going to be, can he change that? Can he get them to, to use the vast financial resources that Manchester United generate each season and target that money on intelligent signings, um, which actually strengthen the squad and allow them to play better football in the field rather than signings which are obsessed with commercial value or are badly negotiated, um, badly thought through. Um, and another key side of the Woodward regime, which I think we've already seen that that problem doesn't look like it's going away, it's the renewal of contracts for players who are not good enough to hold down a first-team shirt at Manchester United. Um, we've seen Phil Jones get a five-year contract um, and there are suggestions of more deals along those lines. Until United stop uh, keeping their squad full of players who are not performing at the level required to challenge for the Premier League title, it's going to be very hard for any manager, um, all, and never mind one who's never won anything of, of significance in, in European football as a manager to do well at that football club. Just uh, finally for me on this, um, I, I do believe the devil's in the detail when it comes to success and indeed failure in football. And there's a couple of things that strike me which may well be overlooked um, in, in terms of Solskjaer's appointment. First of all, um, he's 45 years old. And what we've seen in terms of patterns in the Premier League in the last uh, sort of four or five years is <clears throat> the average age of coaches coming down. And so you now have... Um, guys in charge of you know top four clubs, um, all under fifty, in mid in mid forties. Um, that's that's important because it means that they are closer to these young guys who they are managing <clears throat> in terms of age, and the things they can't understand about their younger players, they will learn and they're happy to learn. Whether it's social media or you're wanting to watch NFL or NBA or whatever, um, and therefore they're able more easily to relate to them. Secondly, this probably is a little bit of a quirky one, but um, it struck me very, very significantly. Now, when Solskjaer speaks, he speaks almost in a Manchester accent because he obviously grew up as a kid playing for Manchester United. So he has this almost kind of, you know, kind of cocky Manchester accent when he is in press conferences and obviously when he's in the dressing room as well. And people relate to that. Manchester United fans relate to that. They see someone, you know, the old, that hoary old statement, he's one of our own. And... But that is how he comes across. He's one of their own. And that means a lot to them. Um, so, again, these are just little things, but I do think they're, they're significant and can be significant in terms of Solskjaer's um, potential to succeed at Old Trafford. Bayern Munich have spent a significant chunk of their budget on Lucas Hernandez from Atletico Madrid for a 
fee of 80 million euros. Uh, that's on top of what they've already spent on Benjamin Pavard, who they signed from VFB Stuttgart. Guys, with this kind of significant spending going on, is it just a matter of time before we have our first 100 million euro defender? I think it is, yes. I think, uh, um, you know, I think Bayern Munich made a good signing there. Um, you know, a defender who's developing into one of one of the better defenders in Europe who can play left back, which is um, always a diff- one of the hardest positions to recruit in modern football. So you have few um, natural left-sided or, or players comfortable playing in the left side of the fence and it can also play centre-back. Um, so you, you can see uh, why they've gone for Hernandez and why they've taken advantage of... Um, a sort of degree, there's a, a large degree of discontent, I think, at Atletico Madrid with Diego Simeone's management from that squad. And you see a number of players agitating for moves, um, Antoine Griezmann being uh, the most significant of them at present. Um, and Atletico also having invested a huge uh, sum of money in their squad for this season. Uh, in an attempt to win the Champions League, which has now failed and probably having to recruit recoup that cash um, and but you also have to say that they're not paying for the finished article um, in that position and if they're paying 80 million euros for someone who's not the finished article then it's not going to be too long before someone goes to that 100 million euro mark for um, a guy who's perceived to be absolute best um, in the position uh, at present, um, you know, one guy who is a possibility would be Koulibaly at um, Napoli, and that um, 100 million uh, fee is kind of the basic asking price that uh, Napoli's owner um, wants for Koulibaly, um, who, as as you'll know from listening to the transfer window regularly, was identified by Jose Mourinho as the as the best guy to bring in as the experienced. Uh, ready-made centre-back that Manchester United needed. So, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it is just a matter of time, and I think it could potentially happen in this summer's um, transfer window. So it might well be that uh, by the time Lucas Hernandez is uh, starting pre-season training for Bayern Munich, he'll already have been surpassed on on that price um, in the summer window by one of the the big clubs with. Manchester City um, definitely being in the market for a top defender. Um, Manchester United are, although as we discussed earlier, their tendency is probably going to be to go for someone um, young. And with um, Matthias De Ligt on very much um, on the market, expected by himself and by his club Ajax to leave this summer, and Ajax asking £100 million, um, as his transfer fee. I think as well that what we're seeing is is the the defence or the defenders who have very much been seen as the poor relations of um, their more kind of um, flamboyant and uh, high profile um, strikers and attacking midfielders finally catching up in terms of of market value. Um, obviously, the most expensive defender currently in terms of world record is Virgil Van Dijk. At Liverpool at £75 million, and a lot of people balked at the fee Liverpool paid. But very quickly, Van Dijk has convinced, I think, almost everyone that he's worth that and more. And indeed, if he were on the market now, you'd think you'd probably command twice the fee that uh, Liverpool paid Southampton. So, um, 
this is as a result of um, tactics evolving in modern football as well. Um, defenders are much more part, uh, much more an integral part of a lot of coaches' tactical setup. Therefore, they're expected not only to repel um, their opposition players, but also to be part of the um, build-up of play. So, ball-playing defenders are valued. Defenders who um, understand when to play, when not to play. But also, obviously, overlapping fullbacks, which we've been familiar with for a long time. But not only in terms of the overlap, but also in terms of them being able to understand what the tactical pass and move um, phases are when they are in the opposition half. So they play in triangular um, formations with attacking midfielders, with a winger. Uh, they'll often be the one who goes inside rather than the one who goes to the byline. And hence why Bayern, I think, have invested in both France international fullbacks now, and Pavard and Hernandez, who both obviously featured in the World Cup winning side. I think it's also important to note in terms of Hernandez that he's not just a left-back, he's, he's an actual left-sided player and indeed has played left-centre-back both for his country and for Atletico Madrid um, when they were on their way to winning Europa League. So it's not like they're investing purely in a left-back there. But as I said, I think it's, it's now catching up uh, with, with people in terms of the value of defenders uh, to the team and therefore that's now reflected in the price that clubs are, p- are paying for defenders. You'll have to look at the importance of uh, Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold to Liverpool in terms of the way that they play and they're not just about defending on either side, they're very much part of the full integrated Klopp formation with regards to how that uh, team plays with and without the ball. So hundred million euro defender, I think Duncan's right. I think we're certain to see that this summer. There's been, you know, there's been a, a pursuit of high quality centre backs for I think six, seven years in football. As it's changed, uh, the demands for centre back have changed to someone who can play the ball out from defence and is comfortable playing the ball out from defence. Um, it's always been a difficult position to recruit in, and I think that the, the fees are now reflecting that. Um, I mean, Imeric Laporte is a great example, um, signed last season by Manchester City for close to the fee that uh, uh, Liverpool paid for Van Dijk. They gave him the best wages um, for a defender in the Premier League when they signed him, and they've already renewed that contract on improved terms um, this season. And if you you listen to Pep Guardiola talking about Laporte, um, what's the thing he um, highlights about Laporte is his ability to pass the ball with his left foot. Um, so he, he wants a defender, yes, but he wants a defender with the size and, and the defensive ability who can fit into his attacking system um, to, and, and wants one who can... He wanted a left-footed one because he, he could move the ball quicker with his left foot when it fell to that side and that side of the defence. Um, so if you add all those elements together... In terms of needing a guy who's tactically intelligent, who's uh, good on the ball, who can defend in an era when it's harder um, than ever to defend, because uh, the the tolerance for for fouls is is uh, is less than it's ever been, um, and can defend against increasingly smaller, more nimble players, because people like Guardiola put the emphasis on um, building their attacks from those those kind of uh, players, it actually reduces the field um, of candidates to choose from to, to a very, very small number. Um, 
and therefore, if you have a, a limited market, the prices go up. Um, and you know, it, it, it's interesting to see uh, Real Madrid snapping out someone like um, Eder Militão um, before uh, the window is even close to opening, uh, agreeing to pay his release cross from Porto um, before he'd even completed one season in European football with the idea of bringing him in to replace Sergio Ramos. And then you have Lucas Hernandez going from Atletico to Bayern Munich again before the window is even open. So that's two of the biggest clubs in European football and world football, um, both of whom have had extremely disappointing seasons by their standards. What do they do? They go and sign centre-backs um, for large amounts of money as quickly as possible uh, because they see them as being fundamental to getting themselves back on the right track at the top level of the game. Okay, it's time now for our quickfire round. And given that we are fast approaching a matchup between Liverpool and Spurs, we thought it'd be a terrific idea to go back to do a 4-3-3 lineup combination of the two teams. So we'll start with you, Ian. Who's our goalie? I'm going to give it to Alison Becker. Um, I, I don't think there's much to choose between him and Hugo Lloris. I think Lloris has proven himself in the Premier League to be very consistent and um, and very effective. But I'm preferring Alisson um, because his distribution is is exceptional. Um, he is prone to the odd error, which we know we've seen this season. But then so is Lloris. So um, my vote would go to Alisson. Duncan, left back? Um, I think the left back has to be Andy Robertson. Um, it's, left back's a bit of a problem position for... Um, Tottenham at present, they still want to sell Danny Rose um, and Robertson's very much the, the man in possession and the up-and-coming force at, at left-back um, in the Premier League at the moment, so you, you'd have to choose him. Ian, left centre-back? Um, Jan Vertonghen. Centre-back, centre-back. Let's not complicate matters. Indeed. Well, I'd, I'd go for Jan Vertonghen. I think um, we all know who's going to be his partner. Um, I'm sure Duncan won't disappoint on that one. So I, I don't think that really there's a there's a major contender there against Vertonghen at Liverpool. Um, and I think indeed even Jurgen Klopp would be quite happy to have Vertonghen beside uh, said player who Duncan's about to announce. Here's where Duncan uh, upsets the apple cart and goes for something wild. Oh, Dejan Lovren. <laughs> James, um, Milner. Yeah. James Milner, he can play any position, especially if Ian McGarry's the manager. Um, well, it, has to, it would have to be Virgil van Dijk, obviously, um, who is having an exceptional season and uh, has clearly made a huge difference along with Alisson in putting Liverpool in a position where they have the chance to win the Premier League. OK. Um, Ian, who's your right back? Right back well... <clears throat> Everyone, well, you'd be tempted to Trent Alexander Arnold because he has been, you know, the breakthrough player of the last uh, 12 or 14 months in the Premier League. But I think Kieran Trippier has to get a shout here because not only has he proven himself to be very reliable in defence and going forward, but he has that amazing set piece threat as well. And if you were to weigh up the two in terms of a game like this where um, set pieces, will probably be as important as counter-attacks. I'm edging towards Trippier on, on the, the right-back position. Duncan, you going to have at the base of our midfield? Um, I think this is an interesting one, uh, partly because 
the managers are selecting players there who you could argue aren't the best in the position. So Jordan Henderson still being regularly played by by uh, by Jurgen Klopp um, and clearly struggles in, in a number of games. Um, Harry Winks has become Pochettino's preferred option in in that role. Um, I think, well, because of the way, because of his abilities on the ball, but I'm not sure about him as a defensive midfielder. Um, I, th- I like Victor Wanyama a lot as a defensive midfielder. Um, he's had a really difficult season with injury. Um, I'm not sure he's going to be at Tottenham next season, but I think uh, if his uh, injury problems can be resolved, he is a he's a top Premier League holding midfielder. But the guy I would pick on present form is Fabinho, um, who I think has make, who makes a huge difference to Liverpool. I think he's defensively easily as good as Jordan Henderson, and he's a far better user of the ball. Um, far better at picking the pass forward and playing to his teammates and, and and generally makes a difference to Liverpool when they have him on the side. OK, Ian, who's going to play in a more attacking position in that midfield? Um, I've got to say, it could be right or left, this guy, uh, but he's an exceptionally talented footballer. Plays with both feet, um, his head up, always looking for the pass, and often it's a killer pass, as well as having goals in himself. But Christian Eriksen, for me, is, is someone who you know has to be included in this eleven. Uh, he's just he's got he's got everything he's an all-round footballer um, and one who with one year I think or maybe two years left in his contract um, after the summer uh, I think Spurs are going to struggle to hold on to him this this uh, transfer window upcoming because he doesn't look to me like someone who um, wants to stay at Tottenham for the rest of his career and therefore uh, with Barcelona and Real Madrid both interested as well as other clubs and remember we go back to Bayern Munich as we've spoken about in this podcast he would be a very good fit there as well so I think Ericsson's got to be in that midfield three Duncan? I'm, I'm shocked that Ian hasn't found a place for Jimmy Milner yet I was waiting for you to, to pick him Duncan that's transfer, right. transfer window first you can, you can wait all day for me to pick him it's not going to happen <laughs> um, I think uh, if I was picking a Liverpool player, and I think midfield has been a, a weakness for the team, um, it would be Wijnaldum, who's had his best season uh, for the club this year. But I think given the strength of the defence we have in this combined eleven, um, I would give the place to Deli Ali. Um, you could afford uh, his defensive weaknesses for the advantages of having him playing just behind the forward line in that 4-3-3 formation. Who's going to play on the left, Ian? I don't think there's any competition. It's going to be Saido Mane, who um, I've already described on the podcast as um, for me maybe player of the year in the Premier League. And um, he's just his all-round game. He scores goals, he makes goals. His speed is almost uncontrollable when he's running at defenders. And uh, yeah, I just think he's been... And he's, he's, he's actually impressed in the sense that he's improved his game. He's worked really hard and got better and better. And that's something which you can't say about a lot of players who play at this level, but Manny's one of those. Duncan, who are you going to play on the right? On the right, um, you would think it would be Mo Salah. And I think across the last two seasons, it would definitely be Mo Salah. But I think picking on current form, um, I think there is a good argument to have Sun Kyung ming in, in that totally, role. Totally agree with that, Duncan. Totally agree. I think he is just... Uh, he's been performing exceptionally um, certainly in the second half of the season um, and uh, it's interesting to see how much better he can get as a footballer actually because um, he, he has that uh, 
the the physical and mental attributes that I've seen in lots of South Korean footballers. I covered South Korea going into the 2002 World Cup when Hiddink was in charge and uh, fell in love with what I was seeing on the pitch and the, the attitude of the players. Um, and he's he's got a kind of European um, intelligence to his game as well, uh, which which has turned him into one of the top performers in the Premier League this season. So Sun gets the role. And finally, Ian, you can round this off with your striker. Wow, there's, there's really sort of no debate as I mean, a man has already become an England legend, uh, loved by everyone, it seems, which is difficult for any player in England to be loved across the board. But when he plays like he does, then that's uh, it's just easy for him. You know, captain his country, captain his club. And, you know, James Miller's clearly the man to play up front. <laughs> sorry, sorry, did I say Harry Kane? <laughs> that was, you got me there. That was brilliant. Harry Kane, certainly the man, the man to be up top. Um, I think what I love most about Harry Kane is um, he just he just wants to score, and uh, we saw um, when in the two recent England games uh, where he wasn't really getting the kind of service that he wanted, but um, he just he's just desperate desperate to get the ball in the net, and um, yeah, I mean I don't think anyone would disagree with with that, and uh, it was pleasing to get James in just uh, just for like ten seconds. <laughs> Duncan, any doubt about Harry Kane there? Liverpool do have some pretty damn good attacking players that could fill that role. I think you have to you have to have Harry Kane there. I mean, you, the, there was a point in the season when Salah was being used at number nine when he was being, um, I think, probably in his most effective for Liverpool this season. But but Jurgen Klopp stepped away from that. He was playing that four two three one formation, which was which was quite productive for him but he decided to to go more defensive once he had the lead in the title um uh, yeah in terms of uh, consistency of performance yeah, you'd have to have Kane there and I think if I'm, I'm am I right in thinking we've got six Tottenham players we in the 11 which, which which shows you which shows you the you know the strength of Tottenham's first team I mean, some of these are marginal picks but the argument about Tottenham from um, and about Maurizio Pochettino from competing managers has been the quality of his squad might not be the best in terms of depth, but the quality of his first team is as good as anyone in the Premier League. Um, I think Manchester City are, are definitely stronger than Tottenham in that respect now. But two years ago, um, the argument would would I think correctly be that Tottenham has had as good a first eleven as anyone, which kind of filters into these arguments about how good is Maurizio Pochettino really? Um, very good, done a great job, but absolute top level still has to be proven in, in, in my um, feeling for it. Okay, it's time to wrap this transfer window up, but fear not, we're going to be back on Monday to fulfil all your podcasting needs. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own Transfer Window account at Transfer Podcast, so follow us there. If you want to talk to me, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, Ian is at Garbo SG, and Duncan is, of course, at Duncan Castles. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. Until Monday...